Hello and welcome to a brand new podcast, Where Did It All Go Right? I'm Ali Jones and in this podcast I'm going to talk to broadcasters, comedians, presenters, musicians, anybody really in a creative job. I want them to share their stories of how they got to where they are because I've often been asked how I got to do what I do and I also realise that friends that I grew up with, maybe we went to uni together or met somewhere along the course of my career, have some really interesting jobs And I was really intrigued to know what the kind of sliding doors moments were for them, the things that happened that shaped where they are now. So I'm going to be talking to friends and new friends that I've harassed to come on this podcast. And I'm hoping I've got people from all sorts of jobs. And so far, I've learned so much already. I hope it inspires you. And if nothing else, gives you some really interesting stories to listen to wherever you're listening to this podcast, on your commute, in the bath, in the kitchen, whatever you're up to. What's been fascinating is that everyone has goals and it might not necessarily be to be the very best or to be really, really rich, but everyone has got different levels that they want to get to and it's really great to hear how they went about it. So who shall we start with? Well, if you've ever dreamed of working in comedy or just want to listen to someone who, I promise you, will make you laugh, you need to listen to this man. Paul Mayhew Archer is the co-writer of The Vicar of Dibley. He's been involved in way too much comedy to list here. So let's just say he's got a CV that is glittering in comedy gold. It includes Mrs Brown's boys, Miranda. Well, he can tell you all about it. He's our very first guest on Where Did It All Go Right? There might be a few rude words in here. So just a warning if there are young ears about. Paul, (laughs) thank you for talking to us. Did you always want to work in comedy? I think I did. I think I... From the earliest memories, I was trying to make jokes. When I was eight or nine, I got a puppet theatre and I used to put on puppet shows for my friends. Were they funny puppet shows? Well, I found that the more puppet shows I put on, the fewer friends I had. (laughs) They were really terrible. And all the strings got sort of caught up together and they always ended in, in tragic sort of circumstances. I used to do these shows on the on the coal bunker at the back of our house and and a couple of my friends would sit on a wall and then leave the wall after ten minutes when I hadn't been able to disentangle the puppet. <laughs> you have to get the scissors out then, yes, don't you? It was awful. <laughs> um, so I was trying to, to write then and then I can't remember what age I was, but I saw some Akebourne plays and they were very influential because I just thought I'd love to write like that. So I sort of, all the time... Well, during my secondary school, because I was an only child, I had three activities that I engaged in during my free time. One was to play a ball game, which consisted of me sort of throwing a ball against a wall, letting it bounce once and catching it with one hand. You're a very patient child. I would have test matches between Australia and England of this Fabulous. Pointless game. The other thing I would do was to play one-handed bridge. So I would sort of uh, put four chairs around a table and go and sit in the south chair and pick up my hand and bid on it and then move around to the west chair, try and forget what was in the south chair and bid on the west. (laughs) And the third thing I did was to try and write bits of plays, comedy plays. So what you'd say probably, being an only child... It was a huge advantage. It honed your craft. It honed my craft. (laughs) That's amazing. um, And then in the sixth form, I... I wrote a play, a whole hour, and I showed it to my English teacher and he said, you should put this on. And so I put it on and it, it was transformative because I, I heard people laughing. I mean, you know, I had t- 
terrible jokes about breaststroke and things like that. I mean, awful, <laughs> you know. But to me, they were new jokes because I hadn't heard them before. And do you think if your teacher hadn't said put the show on, do you think you'd have had the confidence to do that? I'm not sure. Mm. I know. I'm not sure. I would have done really. I'm not sure. I would have had the confidence to do it, and um, because I've always lacked confidence. Strangely. You wouldn't think This so, is the man who's about to go on a one-man show tour. Yes, but I've always lacked confidence. When I went to Cambridge, I didn't have the confidence to join Footlights. So I joined a sort of spin-off group called the Cambridge University Light Entertainment Society. And we used to do shows for prisons, psychiatric units, hospitals, anywhere where the audience couldn't get away. And we would inflict our entertainments upon these poor benighted souls. And the thing was... I was very lucky because Andy Hamilton also didn't quite have the confidence to join Footlights and so he joined Kules and we used to write together at, at Cambridge. So, so two not very confident people found each other. Found each other and my final year at Cambridge we took a couple of shows up to Edinburgh in the hope you know, that we would be discovered and I wasn't discovered, none of us was discovered. And so I did teacher training and then came and taught down in Abingdon at John Mason School. You see, every time you think something might be the end of the road, Mm. something else happens that gives you a new opportunity. And it turned out that teaching at John Mason was a fantastically useful break for me because the headmaster said, we'd like you to do the lower school play. And I looked around for plays for 11 to 14-year-olds and I didn't really find any. So I thought, well, I'll write one. So I wrote one and I ended up writing eight plays, I think, for the school. And that's where I learned to write. Because the great thing was that if I wrote a play for them, they'd put it on. (laughs) There was no escape. They were so desperate (laughs) for the material. And it meant that I got to see them. Mm the first couple I, I actually I produced. So it's a great, great training ground. So yes, you because when you, you write something, particularly if it's comedy, you quickly get a sense of, of whether it's working or not. And then you think, ah, right, well, I won't do that again. Mm. And ah, I see, oh, that's the way that joke works. Did the kids inspire you or did they slightly drive you around the bend did you think okay it's great I'm here I'm writing plays and I'm doing some comedy but I, I kind of want to be out of teaching or I mean I realized very early on that teaching wasn't quite for me mm. I think in a school though actually strangely enough my whole career has been involved with teaching in the sense that I've tried to encourage lots of other writers and I've worked with writers and that being a script editor is sort of a bit like a form of teaching but when I was teaching, the, the thing was I had enormous problems with discipline because I'm just hopeless. You're too soft. I think I lost control of my year nine class within five minutes of my first <laughs> lesson and I never got them back. And I used to stand in front of this class saying, you know, look, if we can't discuss this sensibly one at a time, then you just have to do some writing. And a girl would pipe up saying, you're only giving us writing because you can't control us. And I'd been muttering. Oh, no. Yes, you're absolutely right, but that doesn't matter. And then I found myself, you know, muttering, I wish I had a machine gun and I could kill you all. And that's not a healthy attitude for a teacher. I mean, you know, it simply isn't. I believe it's, it's 
not allowed. Um, so, so did you just decide, I've had enough one day? I mean, I mean it must be very... No, s- you see, it was entirely luck, oh, really. Go on. I wrote a play for the staff, and I sent it to Alan Aitbourne, and he eventually sent me a very sweet reply, but didn't, wasn't interested in the play. I sent it to the BBC. I mean, it was completely unsuitable. It was, you know, it was entirely set in a nuclear shelter. <laughs> and it wasn't televisual in any way at all, really. I don't know why I sent it, but they sent me a very nice reply. And then, as a bit of huge luck, I was in the library and I was looking at Punch magazine and there was an advert for radio comedy producers. And you I say thought, it was luck, but you still had to apply for it and get, and get the job. Well, yes. And again, it's that sort of confidence thing. What encouraged me was that they said they were looking for more than one producer. They are looking for a little team. So anyway, I applied and I got an interview. Yeah, and it's really interesting that you're talking about it gave you that confidence that it was a team. Do you, do you prefer yes. working with a group of people then and having that support rather than being on your own? Yes. I think I do, really. And I think it's been borne out by my experiences in the sense that the, the shows that I've worked on that seem to have worked uh, seem to have been ones that have been created by other people rather than me. <laughs> in fact, I remember going to a... I was giving a talk somewhere and I was introduced by this lady. It was a fantastic introduction. She said, um, Now, I think I can say without fear of any contradiction that we have with us today, someone I can call a minor celebrity. <laughs> Very much the emphasis on minor. <laughs> and she then went on to say, now, Paul has worked on many situation comedies. He worked on a programme entitled The Vicar of Dibley, which ran for many series and was created by Richard Curtis. <laughs> he also worked on a programme, a situation comedy, entitled My Hero, which ran for several series and was created by Paul Mendelssohn. (laughs) He also created several of his own situation comedies, which did not run for several (laughs) series. So by this point, I don't don't really want to talk here. (laughs) This is absolutely priceless. (laughs) But I have sort of... I have learned that, you know, I'm not the best person at coming up with an original situation comedy. Did you find, though, that that jump from teaching into writing was a mm. scary one? It's not, it's not such a job that is so stable and so safe, is it? Isn't that strange? It, it never Did... really occurred to me that it... I, want, I wanted to leave teaching. I mean, when I got offered the job, the letter I got said we're writing to let you know that you have not got the job but uh, we did like you and we'll be writing to you shortly to offer you a short-term contract and I got the impression that the original intention was to offer a short-term contract so I thought this must be really short this must be a fortnight during the Easter holidays mind you I'm I'm up for that Anything, anything to escape. Anything to escape. Because even though, I mean, John Mason was a lovely school, but I just just knew that I didn't want another year nine class. (laughs) So I got got this job, and it turned out to be a year's contract as a radio comedy. That's not short at all, is it? That's good. It's not short. It's fantastic. I was the only one they they hired, and I realised then that everything had been pointing me towards that 
job in a sense. Even though I, I took my little Sainsbury's carrier bag with my plays that I'd written for the school to my interview, <laughs> and at the end of the interview they said, now, is there anything you'd like to ask us, Paul? And I said, uh, well, no, no, I don't think so. But I, I have written these plays. I, I don't know whether you're interested in reading them. And one of the panel, Ted Taylor, who is still alive and who wrote um, Men from the Ministry and mm. classic sitcoms, said, I don't think so, Paul. We're not really interested in looking at works written for another medium. Thank you. And I thought, mm, well, that's that. And I left the interview and I went across the road to see Andy Hamilton. And I said, well, I pretty sure I haven't got the job but anyway it was a nice experience and so I was quite surprised when I I did get the job and then you see it was incredibly lucky because I was working with writers I was a producer mm. so I was producing something like you know weekending sketching and I just studied I was learning on the job I was producing the show but I was learning how to write the sketches as well as, well as giving notes on how I thought they should be written. <laughs> but that, that's interesting. So do you think if you want to be a writer, do you think you can learn it a little bit? Or do you think that you've still got to have quite a little bit of talent going on there as well? You've, there's a lot of technique you can learn. And you have to learn it by just doing it. Mm. And you learn the tricks of the trade. And like all jobs, there are lots of tricks of the trade. You have to have a certain way of looking at the world and you have to be able to ask yourself the right questions and you have to have a sense of the, the rhythms of language, I suppose. Mm. It was the most extraordinary experience working with Richard Curtis because he's such a nice man. How did that come about? Well, it was a, it, it was a strange one. After I'd been producing programmes for several years on radio, I thought, I'm going to have a go at writing a radio sitcom. Because what I'd been doing during the first few years of producing radio shows was that I was still writing, but I was writing for John Mason School. Right. Because they used to put the plays on, I'm still learning. You still had an audience. I still had an audience. And then eventually I thought, no, I'm going to have a go at writing a radio sitcom. So I wrote a sitcom called An Actor's Life for Me, which John Gordon Sinclair was in. And it did quite well on radio, Radio 2 it was on, and it transferred to BBC One. And I got very excited. I was going to say, you must have been whooping for joy I by this just, point. Oh, 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 this was dream. <laughs> From John Mason School. This was dream come true, land. <laughs> I mean, this was phenomenal. And we were doing it up in uh, Birmingham, Pebble Mill, and, and I've continued doing this during recordings. Right at the start, I tend to cross every finger possible and I stand beside the monitor, so I can't actually see what's on the monitor. So is this your little thing that you, this is the thing you do every time? Yes. And I wait for the first laugh. And I hear the laugh, hopefully. And I think, ah, yes. And then I come round and I look at the monitor and I look at how the scene's going and I hear the laughter. And I think, yes. Hooray, hooray. And then, and this pilot went very well. And towards the end, I got so excited, I was actually standing at the side I'd gone into the studio and I was standing at the side of the audience. I was going, yes. Fingers still crossed? Fingers still crossed and I was sort of jigging up and down with excitement. <laughs> and I suddenly noticed a very elderly lady looking at me rather than at the monitors or the actors. And I indicated that I would stop making any sort of movement or noise and that she should watch the monitors. And she whispered across to me and she said, no, no, no. 
you keep it up, love. You're funnier than that lot. <laughs> She's just wonderful. Anyway, uh, we did the pilot, yeah. and it got a series, and I was unbelievably excited. And then I got into that situation of the ratings, and the ratings are just so important. Mm. And it started quite well, and then they dropped a bit, and then they never sort of picked up. And I remember the final episode, two days before it went out, I met Simon Brett, who produced the pilot of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and is a very well-known writer, who, and he wrote After Henry, which mm. was a huge mm. hit on Radio 4, and then transferred to television. And he came up to me and he said, I just want to say, I really like that sitcom of yours, An Actor's Life for Me, it's terrific, I hope it gets another series. And I said, well, thank you. The... Um, Ratings, you know, don't seem to be going up, and I'm, I'm just, I think it's a bit on, bit of a knife edge, you know. He said, well, I really hope it does well. Anyway, the first five episodes of An Actor's Life for Me had gone out opposite a documentary programme on ITV called This Week. An Actor's Life for Me was doing all right against that. The last episode, for some reason, ITV changed its schedule. Oh, no. And they put on a repeat of After Henry against An Actor's Life for Me. And my ratings just dropped. Bombed. And so he, that man who'd said, I hope it's a success and you get a second seat, he killed Percy! <laughs> he ruined it! <laughs> ah! There we go. Lovely man. Oh. Killed my series. So how, you were so, talking about Richard Curtis. So then. anyway, the thing was, I then was thinking, I don't know what to do. I mean, everybody had said this would be a hit. Mm. Uh, it seemed to go very well. It isn't a hit. It's been axed. And I, at that time, was working part-time at Channel 4. And I got a phone call from Tiger Television, who said, Now, Richard Curtis has come up with an idea for a sitcom about a woman vicar. And he's looking for someone to write with. And he wondered if you'd like to go along and have a chat with him. And I thought, ah, he wants to pick my brains about writers. So I wrote a list of ten writers that I thought he'd get on with very well. Went to see him and I said, I've got this list. They're all lovely. And he sort of looked at the list and he said, oh, right. Um, oh, um, see, the thing was, I, I, I wondered whether you'd like to have a go. So and that shows that you were kind of not thinking of yourself. And well, again, you say you well, have confidence. Well, because my show had just been hacked. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought, it can't possibly be me. So I said, ah, right, me. Oh, God. Um, and again, rather than leaping in and saying, yes. I will write the entire series with you. What I said was, tell you what, I'll come up with some storylines and if you like one of them, maybe I could write. <laughs> Looking back, do you think that now your confidence has grown since that time or do you think you'd have still had the same response now? Do you think that's just who you are? Yeah, <laughs> still. I, no, it genuinely is. I, I tend to say things like, well, I'll, I'll have a go. Yeah. When you're talking about working with Richard, do you write separately? Yeah, never written together. No. Never sat in the same room. And we sort of always got along incredibly well. He's the perfect um, person at delivering the, what they call the shit sandwich. Yes, I've heard of that. Yes, yeah. because he says, um, ah, Paul, the joke on page three is absolutely glorious. I, I hooted with laughter. So wonderful. Pages 10 to page... Uh, 450. Four, yeah. Bit of a problem. Not quite sure about the structure there. Maybe we could do this, we could do that. We need a bit of this and a bit of that and a bit of this. Um, 
Oh, that joke on page 435 <laughs> also is possibly the funniest joke I've heard all year. And so I come away thinking, I'm absolutely amazing. Just need to look at those 300 pages in the middle. <laughs> and writing there can be, you, you like writing on your own, but it can be quite a lonely experience. So yes. what do you do to cheer yourself up? You might well, wake up now, in the morning and think, I don't feel very funny today. Well, now the thing is, you see, I've been very lucky again in that I've almost never spent all my time writing alone mm. because I was a script editor. So part of my time was writing. Mm. But two or three of the days of the week were working with other writers. And in fact, I finally, at the age of 40, something like 42, I finally fulfilled what I thought was my lifetime's ambition. I left Channel 4, where I was assistant to the commissioning editor. On the Friday afternoon, I left Channel 4. And on the Monday morning, I woke up as a full-time writer with a couple of episodes of Dibley to do mm-hmm. and also a second series of a script of a show I had created called Nelson's Column. And I woke up on the Monday full of terror. Dread. Thinking, if I don't write something funny today, my family will not eat. So how do you cope with that pressure? I didn't. The next two months I spent writing two episodes of Nelson's Column and I sent them to my producer with a little covering note saying, I have a horrible feeling these are terrible. And she rang me up. She said, I have a horrible feeling you're completely right. And I had to start again. And at the end of the year, I had written a series and we were making a series. And I was in such a state. I, I did actually go to my, the head of the radio comedy department and say, could I have my job back? Really? Yes. Yeah. And because I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, it was John Gordon Sinclair again. And he had a little bit of problem with a bit of, business in the episode and I was trying to sort it out and I said I'll take it home tonight and I'll rewrite it and I couldn't do it and I woke up the next morning and I said to Susie the producer director I said I I can't I can't actually even come in because I'm shaking so much Mm. I don't and she said ah now what do you do to relax and I said well normally I write but I'm not sure that's not working the answer today so she said, right, go and see every film in Oxford. I said, OK, I'll, I'll do that, but I'll go and see the doctor first. So I went to the doctor and uh, he said, ah, yes, sounds like clinical depression, have some Prozac. So I was on Prozac. They, they solved the problem in the script. I've never seen that episode, but apparently it was all right. So the following week I go in, drive into work, having taken Prozac for one week. And I found myself singing a song in the car. And uh, I apologise in advance for the lyrics of this song, but the song went, I can remember it quite vividly, the song went, Bucky, fucky, fucky, wank, wank, fuck. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, now, this is a very odd thing to be doing, but mostly I was thinking to myself, fucky, 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 wank, wank. <laughs> and I went to see the BBC doctor. And it was very strange because he listened to this and he said, Now, do you know, I sing a song very much like that, um, but I sing it to the chimes of Big Ben. Um, fuck, 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 fuck. <laughs> wank, 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 wank. And he said, But the amazing thing is, I don't need Prozac to do it. <laughs> so, anyway, I came off Prozac pretty quickly. But yeah. And then I went to see a counsellor and sort of sorted it out, really. How long did that take? Well, I talk about this in my show, really, because what I discovered, of course, 
was that it, as ever all these things go back to your earliest days mm. and what it went back to was my mum and my mum died she died of cancer and I realised that the reason I'd been working writing comedy from the earliest times was not to make other people laugh it was to make me laugh right. in, a, in a home where yeah. laughter was in short supply so anyway I, um, I worked through that and also very luckily my very good friend Geoffrey Perkins who made Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the series, and literally produced everything. You, you name it. And he was the head of comedy at the BBC. And he said to me, you need to get out of the house, Paul. Mm. Mm. So why don't you come and work at the BBC part-time? So I... So it was almost, again, it was, it was rather than having to do the whole writing all the time, I've got to be funny all the time, yes. it was splitting your time. It was splitting my time, so I... Taking and, the pressure off and a bit. the... And it's incredibly useful because it's taking the pressure off and it's saying to other people, you've got to be funny today and I'm going to try and help you be funny. And then the next day it's, oh, I've got to try and be funny today. Yeah, yeah. And that was helpful. And the other thing was it meant that I was, you know, in what is deemed to be a pretty precarious profession, I was never out of work. And it meant that those cliff edges when, you know, you get a series axed, mm or not recommissioned, which is basically redundancy. It meant that I was not redundant because I'd got, you know, still got some script editing to do. Or I'd... Of, all the, of all the programmes that you've worked on, what, mm. what are you most proud of? Well, Dibley. Uh, the episode of Alice and Hugo's Wedding is one that I remember with particular affection. There was a show I wrote called Office Gossip, which failed completely. I mean, this, is, this shows the ludicrous nature of uh, how obsessed you get about ratings and success. <laughs> Wrote this series, Office Gossip. There was one episode in particular that I was really... I thought I'd done a really good piece of writing on. Anyway, the show didn't catch fire at all. But, so I wrote the show, and I thought, ah, do you know what? I'll go and have a look at some reviews, because I think, you know, this is going to... So I went to the library, because I, you know, I thought, I'm not going to buy the papers. <laughs> <laughs> And so I went to the library, and for some bizarre reason, the first review I picked up was the Financial Times, which said, the good news is that this is written by one of the writers of The Vicar of Dibley. The bad news <laughs> is that the writer is Paul Mayhew Archer, not Richard Curtis. <laughs> and I thought, hmm, I, I don't think I'll read any other reviews. No, it's so not I a good didn't. idea to read reviews, no. is it? And also, week two, a programme came out called The Office. <laughs> And I watched The Office and I thought, this is one of the greatest things I've ever seen. <laughs> I think my show might be dead in the water. But then, anyway, I remember by week four thinking, oh, you know, it'd be great if I could get the ratings up in some way. How can I do, what can I do? And it was three o'clock in the morning and I was lying awake thinking, I know what I'll do. I'll write to the papers and I'll say that unless more people watch my programme this week, I'm going to go into the corn market in Oxford and I'm going to set fire to myself. That's what I'm going to do. And I woke up in the morning thinking, did I really think that? Because I think that nobody would watch the programme, but they'd all come to the corn market to see me set fire to myself. Actually, there's a very interesting Ashtala who produced The Office. Mm -hmm. I remember one piece of advice that he would give to writers is, if you've got a choice on page one between 
no joke at all or a bad joke, always go for the no joke at all option because the bad joke will really put readers off. And I would just add a rider to that, which is to say, if by page 10 you're still going for the no joke at all as opposed to the bad joke, you're probably not writing a sitcom. And you said you could never tell if it's going to be a hit. Have there been times when you thought, this is going to be amazing? Oh, all the time. All the time. <laughs> I mean, I thought an actor's life was going to be a oh, smash really. It's something magical that happens or doesn't happen between the studio recording, but also coming across into your living room, into people's living room. Well, a great example of that is, is Mrs Brown's boys. Yes. Because it's... It all, you can tell that it's working brilliantly for the audience watching in the studio. Yeah. And, but the cleverness is that it comes through on the telly as well, doesn't now, it? Now, and there are moments when you get a sense of something very special happening. And it happened twice in one year, I remember, with both Mrs Brown and Miranda. Because mm. I worked on the first series of Miranda as well. And the, with Miranda, there was a moment when... In the very first episode, she's getting all tongue-tied when talking to the cafe bloke yeah. that she fancies. Yeah. And she gets all in a state, and then she turns to camera and she says, oh, I, don't know what I'm do- I don't know what I'm doing. And there was something so vulnerable and engaging and touching and honest and true about it that you thought, yes, people are just going to love her. Mm. And in Mrs Brown's Boys... And both these shows came out at a time when people were saying, studio audience sitcom is dead. But the Mrs Brown one, in the pilot, there was halfway through the episode, she's just been interfering in her son's life and his prospective marriage. And he says, I I, I don't know why you interfere, Mammy, and storms off. And she sort of turns and gazes after him and whispers to herself, because I'm your mother. And the audience went, ah, oh, mm. it's like a panto. Mm. It's like mm. a panto. And they all went, ah. Oh. And he did something that he'd never done before because he'd never had a studio audience before. This was the pilot of the television program. And he turned to the camera and he said, it's a man in a fucking dress. <laughs> and the roof lifted <laughs> off the studio. It just, And then he turned away from the camera and gazed after his disappearing son. And the audience went, oh, again. And I thought, now, we are in the presence of something quite extraordinary because this man can play a woman Mm. and the audience can engage on two completely separate levels, utterly happy with both. Because he'd worked on this character for decades and he knew her inside out and she's based on his mum. And he said it's the thing that people forget in sitcom. And in comedy is that you've got to have heart and emotion and they've got to care as well as love. And deep down, the audience knows that even if she is appallingly rude, she is, she uses appalling language, she is intolerant, horrible, cruel, vicious and shocking in many ways, but she would give up her life for any of her children. Mm. And that's what binds it. And people respond to the... It's about motherhood. And all sitcoms are about family. Mm. Whether it's a real family or a quasi-family. It's about people who actually, even though they 
There are terrible crises between them all. They can't live without one another. Yeah. You know, you've talked so much about the writing and, and um, all the sitcoms, but for you, things have really changed because, you know, as I walked in and, and there's the poster of your stand-up tour, when you, uh, and we've talked about this before, um, diagnosed with Parkinson's, yeah. it's made a, a change to your career, but probably not in the way that you thought it ever would. No, because I was about to finish. Yeah. I was literally, I mean, I'd just been commissioning editor for Radio 4 Comedy and I just stood in for someone who was ill. <laughs> and a year later found out, oh, I'm ill. And I'd sort of more or less finished. And then, yes, this illness came along and has given me a whole new lease of life, strangely. Is it, do you think, because you thought, well, I've got nothing to lose, so I'm just going to go for it? Um, I think it was because I had a couple of lucky breaks in the sense that the Parkinson's UK, the charity, did a big fundraiser um, in the Royal Albert Hall. And I got to do a couple of minutes of stand-up introducing the I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue teams. And I produced I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue years and years and years ago. And I loved doing that. Just a couple of minutes, you know, the Albert Hall doing some jokes. And then, as a result of that, I got the chance to do another fundraiser, Parkinson's, at the Comedy Store. And I thought, God, that's fantastic. I did ten minutes there. And they invited me back, and so I did another ten minutes. I mean, I have to say, you know, I've done the Royal Albert Hall, followed by the Comedy Store in London, followed by a basement in Edinburgh. So I I can see the direction I'm going in. (laughs) I I think most of the tour will be to public conveniences around the country. Um, but anyway. but you see that you're back to that putting yourself down from the beginning. Well, yes, you see, you, you're, you're I, doing the O2. Paul. But if I put myself down, it it means that I I do it before other people get the chance. Fair enough. Yeah. You know. Would you say being diagnosed and doing this has has kind of made you more fearless? Yes. Well, you know, what's the worst that can happen, really? <laughs> if I forget what I'm doing, I just go over and get, look at my notes because. Yeah. Loss of memory is one of the symptoms of Parkinson's. <laughs> so, you know, use that as an excuse. Great excuse. Yes, it's yeah, fantastic, yeah. really. But has yeah. it, do you feel it's, it's re-energised you in a way, doing something completely different? Well, I just love it. Mm. I absolutely... I mean, I feel fantastic when I, when I finish the show. I mean, I did 25 shows in 26 days in Edinburgh. <laughs> You're crazy. And I felt... <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. I felt really, it was just gorgeous. I loved it. I mean, our son, Simon, is, he keeps saying, I'm so proud of you, Dad. And that means an enormous amount to me because, you know, he's a comedy producer and he produces this country. And I am in, you know, which won a BAFTA for its first series. And I just want to put on record that I am in no way jealous at all of the bastard. <laughs> I'm so glad that <laughs> yes. family relations are going yes. well. Yeah, yeah. absolutely fine. <laughs> yeah. But um, <laughs> I have to ask the question, the fact that he's doing something similar yeah. to you, did family connections help him? He's not here to defend himself either, is he? Which is a bit unfair. He wrote to every... I mean, he, he wrote to loads of people asking if he could have a job as a runner on a production because he sort of came out of the university, he was sort of working in a pub... And doing a bit of sort of work in post-production houses, sort of for nothing, as, as people do these days. Yeah. And and then he wrote to loads of people, saying, "Could I have a job as a runner on your production?" And 
Now, there aren't a lot of Mayhew arches around, so they may have... They, they saw the name, maybe. They may have seen the name <laughs> and thought, ah, oh, now that's interesting. And he got a job as a runner on a BBC Three sketch show. I think the key was that he basically went round absolutely everybody on the crew and he found out what they did. Mm. And he watched what they did. And he so now he's a much better producer than I ever was. I mean, I have to say, <laughs> genuinely is, because he... Well, he got he, a BAFTA, Paul. He got a, he got a BAFTA, and, and the proof is there, you see. <laughs> Dibley got eight nominations. OK, but it didn't get one. No, it, it didn't no, get one no. at all. And, and Mrs. Brown, Mrs Brown got one, but yeah, okay. it wasn't really mine, was it? No. <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, he got an RTS award, a Royal oh. Television Society award as well. Does he come to you for advice, though? Did you look at you know the idea of this country? Did you did you say anything, or did you stick well, well now, out? Well, now that is a now that is a weird thing um, because three years earlier, a little sample was sent to me, a little um, film. My agent sent it to me. Said, that, "Would you work on it as a script editor?" And I said, "This is brilliant. This is fantastic, and it's not for me because I'm the wrong generation to work on this." And what you need is someone young to keep it that raw feeling that this has got because this is exceptional. And for, I don't know who they got and I don't know what happened. It was with ITV or somewhere else and they turned it into a traditional sitcom and it was completely wrong and the pilot didn't work at all. And then it came back to the Beeb or came to the Beeb and the commissioning editor, Shane Allen, had a look at it and he also thought, oh, this is fantastic. So I'll... Um, I'll give it to my young producer in the department called Simon Mayhew-Arch and see what he can do. And Simon Mayhew-Arch, not knowing that his dad, Paul Mayhew-Arch, had ever seen... Had turned it down. Had turned down working on it, but I think for the right reasons, said, uh, yes, this should be a a sort of mockumentary and it should be absolutely real and raw and natural. So I turned it down and said, this should be given to a young producer having no idea that that person would turn out to be my son. Isn't that weird? Who has done precisely what should have been done with it. Yeah. And, we, and it's some, I think it's masterpiece. <laughs> but you, and you mentioned that Simon had to, to work for free and you said that's how it works it nowadays. Is. I mean, if anyone listening is, is interested and wants to work in comedy and write in comedy, do you think things have changed then? I mean, it's always been difficult and it's still difficult. <laughs> but don't um, give up. But don't give up. If, the, if, the, if it's what you want to do... You've, you've got to do it. You've got to find some way in. Some people, the way they find in is that they do what, you know, Charlie and Daisy May did, which was record a little video which they put on YouTube. Yeah. Internet but, is helpful now. The internet it? can be helpful, and it is helpful, except that everybody's doing it. Mm. So therefore, you have to be exceptional to be the one that is picked out. That's a possibility. What you're saying, basically, when you submit your sitcom to the BBC, or to, and the BBC is one of the only places that reads every script that they're sent now, but when you're, you're sending your sitcom off to the BBC, what you're saying to them is, I'd like you to spend about a million pounds on my project. And that's quite a sort of ask, mm, isn't it? Mm. So the more you can do to try and convince them that they're making a good decision in spending a million pounds on your project is to get as much experience and give them as much information as possible. So basically, if you can write sketches and follow the rules of what they want... Mm. So if it's, if it's um, a Mitchell and Webb show, 
write two good roles for Mitchell and Webb, you know. Don't write something where they're not in it. Two women. I mean, just send don't, them the right... Don't do a French and Saunders sketch. Don't do a French and Saunders sketch, you know. Because all these things have disciplines, you know. And if you then get some stuff on, and you might get a commission or something, but even if you don't get a commission, if you've got some stuff on, when you send your script to that producer, he knows who you are, she knows who you are, mm. because you've had some stuff produced. Mm. When Richard Curtis contacted you... Mm. and you Well, it was talked... because he'd seen something. OK, so it's getting your stuff out there. It's getting the stuff out there. Do you think it's important to go and meet people and talk to people? Because you said that you and Andy were the, the two that didn't want to, to join Footlights because you weren't um, mm. confident enough. So did mm. you find that difficult, going up to people and going, hi, I write, and did you, is that something you just wouldn't ever do? Or I, that... didn't do I didn't no. do it. See, I never did that, really, because... And do you think that matters? I, I say I never networked, except that, of course, I've known all the people that you would need to know yes. to network. I mean, essentially, if you do something and it's funny, people will ask you to do a bit more. And if you're nice and funny and good to get along with, they will certainly ask you to do some more. If you're a real pain in the arse, but very funny. They'll still ask you, to do it because you're very funny. If, if you're, you're a, a pain, real pain in the arse and you're not very funny, that's it. <laughs> years and years ago, shortly after I joined the radio comedy department, they had evenings where the producers would put on sketches, would perform, and it was in a local pub, and the first time I had to do anything at it, was I was asked to host, and so I had to do a couple of minutes at the beginning. I'm... I mean, because I was doing it in front of a pub audience full of other producers and writers oh, who no. knew how to do it, and a few writer-performers. It was just ghastly because I had, I'd struggled to think of anything funny. And it was a terrible experience. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you almost have to have those bad experiences to, to kind of get through them. To get, and then yeah. you sort of slowly pick up, ah, so that's what I have to do. That's why that joke works. And that it's constant joke. learning, isn't it? Yeah, it's constant learning. And it... If you look back at everything that we've talked about and through the whole career, what would you say was the sort of pivotal moments, the sliding door moments that that, that was so important? One was my English teacher encouraging me to put on my play. I would say meeting Andy Hamilton at Cambridge, uh, getting the job as a radio producer, which emerged out of the fact that I had written my play and I had done review at university so all those things came together and then meeting Richard Curtis. Mm. Strangely when I got the job as a radio producer one of the questions they said was at the interview was we're just going to go through the output tell us what you think and I thought it was really easy because I listened to lots of radio. Mm. Half the candidates I discovered later, disqualified themselves at that point. Because they hadn't got a clue. Because they said things like, oh, I haven't heard that. No, I haven't. To be honest, I don't listen to radio a lot. Mm. So if you just do a bit of research, or if actually the truth is you love what you're trying to do, then that will help enormously. Enthusiasm mm. is infectious. Yeah. And I absolutely love comedy. Sliding doors moments, aren't they? There are, there are yeah. lots of them, yes. Yeah. And one that you think is a door that's slamming in your face <laughs> actually turns out that, the, you know, if you look up, there's, oh, there's a little sort of 
bit I can get out. You can clamber over. I can clamber over and it actually might be really good. Oh, well, Paul, thank you so much for talking to me. It's been absolutely fascinating and, uh, and really enlightening as well. Thank oh, you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And we'll be back with a brand new episode of Where Did It All Go Right next week. If you'd like to give us a five-star rating, we would love you forever. Tell your friends and subscribe too. You can follow us on Twitter at at WhereGoRight. And see you next week. Thanks for listening.